Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly conversation around news and business, finance and economics. I'm Stan Pinel, the banking editor. And this week, I'm joined by Phil Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, and Simon Wright, our industry editor, to discuss bankers in jail, luxury armored cars and the part privatization of RBS. Let's start with the news that Tom Hayes, a former trader at UBS and Citibank, has been sentenced to 14 years in prison for rigging LIBOR, a key interest rate used by banks. Philip, my first reaction was 14 years? Yes, this is very reminiscent of uh, Admiral Bing, the British admiral who was shot uh, in the 18th century, as Voltaire said, to encourage the others. There have been a lot of complaints that bankers have not gone to jail uh, over the collapse of the financial system in 2008-2009. They finally found someone who admitted guilt in the conversations with a serious uh, fraud office, though he then uh, rescinded his uh, guilty plea. Uh, And so they've decided to make an example of him. Whether 14 years is the right figure, is he going to do it again if he's allowed out into society in three or four years' time is is a moot point. But unfortunately for him, the conversations that he had by email and messaging were so obviously crooked that uh, he didn't really have much defence. And the scandal was so large and came, of course, after the public had spent so much money bailing out the banks that there's going to be very little public sympathy for him. Let's look a little bit at the scandal. What he's accused of doing with a whole bunch of others is is rigging LIBOR, which is the, the London interbank offer rate, the rate at which banks lend to each other. And this rate is important because it's the benchmark for other rates in the economy. Other uh, borrowers pay a spread over LIBOR to reflect their credit risk. And it's in all manner of contracts. So this is a case where the money that has disappeared and went to his bonuses or went to his employers is only a fraction of a wide variety of people. It's very hard to find the victims of this. Uh, This is, of course, one of the problems of cracking down on financial fraud in the first place, that finance is a business which involves asymmetric information in which the people in the middle of it are dealing with very complex instruments that the people outside don't understand. So they don't always know when they're being ripped off. And so it's very hard to point to someone on the street and say they lost, you know, 100 quid or 50 quid as a result of this. But over time, fractions of uh, the money that was being manipulated did um, go to those people who were doing the manipulating. And that's why it's a scandal. Can I come in here? Yeah, Simon, yes. Isn't it good news that bankers are being sent to jail for uh, long periods of time? I mean, we've seen that banks reach plea bargain deals in the past, and that's been very unsatisfactory for everybody, I think. Yes, I think it's good news that people are sent to jail. Whether the length of the sentence is appropriate, I think if you're a banker, then a couple of months in jail is going to be pretty intimidating, let alone 14 years. So uh, one has to set it against the sentences for 
violent crime, for example, to see whether that's a, the appropriate term for this kind of offence. But it certainly will have sent out a signal to other bankers that if they do get caught in these kind of transactions, then they have to fear a, a considerable custodial sentence. So again, it's back to the Admiral Bing point. This is clearly uh, setting an example for the others. And watch the space. This one will run and run. Another dozen uh, traders have already been charged by the serious fraud office. They're talking about maybe 24 conspirators in, just in LIBOR in, in the UK and the US uh, with perhaps more trials due in the autumn. Simon, let's turn to a piece you wrote in, in last week's issue on the armoured luxury car market. Uh, by one estimate, there are 7,500 cars a year getting this, what is essentially the ultimate bling treatment for automobiles. That's exactly right. Luxury armoured cars are quite useful. The whole market is probably four times that size. But there'll be more run-of-the-mill cars that are used for NGOs, maybe, or people working in, in dangerous environments. At the very luxury end of the end of the market, this is your Russian oligarchs. Um, Middle East is a big market. Africans too. And the reason I wrote about it is a showroom has opened up in London that um, is the first one to show off these luxury armoured vehicles. I don't think it's because London is a particularly dangerous place if you're a Russian oligarch, or if you are a Russian oligarch, probably a hail of bullets is not the thing you're going to have to worry about. But the people who pass through London will be interested in these vehicles. But there's another reason as well. I think luxury armoured vehicles are becoming a kind of status symbol. It's not entirely clear that everyone who buys one uh, particularly needs one. Some of the people I spoke to talked about an American sports star who had two Aston Martin Rapides, uh, bulletproofed and bombproofed, and it's not entirely clear that that's a risk he's likely to run. Simon, how much does fitting out these cars cost? Well, it's certainly not cheap. An S-Class Mercedes, by some of the quotes I got, would be sort of double the list price, which would be sort of £200,000. Places open up in London will um, kit out a Range Rover. That could cost anything from 300000 up to a million, depending on the amount of armour you have, the kind of security systems, but also the interior. That's very important. These people who are going around, they want to go around in luxury, so they want to uh, make the interior of the car blinged up as well as making it very, very safe. You're talking specifically about luxury cars. Presumably these cars are designed to go very fast, something which isn't aided by having big metal plates attached to them. That certainly used to be in the, true in the past. You could, you could add three quarters of the weight to a car. But modern materials mean that um, you can do it much more easily using Kevlar or ceramics or composites. You would only add a few pounds to the car, which won't affect the handling or the speed or the fuel economy. Not that mega rich people would care much about that. The other thing about it is discretion is very important for your luxury armoured vehicle. You don't really want to advertise that you've, you, you've got one. And I think that uh, may be a problem for the status obsessed with a luxury armoured car. If you can't flaunt it to your friends, it may not be uh, quite as useful as some other status symbols. Philip, let's return to some exciting news in the financial world. We've had another footnote in the long history of the global financial crisis with the part privatisation overnight Monday of Royal Bank of Scotland, once the biggest bank in the world, it's hard to believe. Should we be outraged that the Treasury is getting less money for its shares than it paid for them in 2008? I don't think so. I think this is what Richard Thaler and other behavioural economists would call anchoring. What you paid for a stake uh, shouldn't really determine whether you think it's the right time to sell it. You should be thinking about what the optimal price is going forward. Yes, they overpaid probably in 2008, and they are now taking a loss of about a third on the current stake, which is being sold for around £2 billion, is about 5% of the company. But they've got quite a bit of the company to offload, so they're doing it in drips. Could they have done this at a better time? 
quite possibly, quite probably. But the key thing, I think, in the long run is to get this off the government books. Seven years is a long time to be having a large stake in a big bank. Uh, and eventually it has to be returned to the private sector. And the money that they originally spent has gone. Forget about it. Concentrate on what you can earn in future. So so let's look at the timing. I mean, why now? Why 2015? This, this stake was bought in 2008, obviously, as part of a, a bailout. Uh, the government owns about three quarters uh, of the bank. They're clearly going to sell it over many years, probably over the length of the parliament, if not if not longer. But why not 2012? Why not 2013? Well, I think anchoring is, again, the problem. They've always wanted to establish some sort of profit uh, relative to their original purchase. Lloyd's TSB, which was the other one uh, bought, they've managed to offload their stake in that at a profit over time. So they wanted to do the same thing. Unfortunately, RBS has such a lot of bad news over the years, so many fines, so many changes, that it's been impossible to get it up to that price to do so. Election has gone by. They might as well get the bad news out of the way and start selling it off now. They've got the cover of a letter from the governor of the Bank of England, which says it's a good time to sell. So uh, they're going to dribble it out over the lifetime of this parliament. Stepping back, we've seen a few bailouts where the government has lauded the fact that they have made a profit. It happened, for example, with with AIG in the US, where a fairly sizable profit was made. It happened, as you mentioned, with Lloyd's. Is there a virtue in making a profit in bailouts? I mean, it strikes me that, that that's not really the reason why the government goes into the capital of a bank. No. The point of a bailout is to stop the economy from imploding, to stop a repeat of the Great Depression when so many banks failed, that depositors lost confidence and uh, GDP fell by a quarter. So we were trying to avoid that outcome and the intervention in the banks had a cost. Of course, you know, good news for taxpayers if that cost is as, as small as possible. But it's impossible to estimate the overall cost of the operation. What would have happened had they not intervened um, to buy a Royal Bank of Scotland? The government might have lost tax revenues uh, substantially from the rest of the economy. It might have taken much bigger hits in terms of higher unemployment and so on. So uh, a proper accounting for this deal is really impossible without the benefit of a time machine. Yeah, it's it's difficult to feel much outrage at this one, despite the, the work of some opposition politicians. Philip Coggan, uh, Simon Wright, thanks very much for coming in. That's all for this week. You can read more about those stories and our finance, economics and business coverage on economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.